Everywhere I go, people are like, Pastor, give me more Jonah. I've got to get more Jonah. I've got a fever and there's only one cure, Jonah. Okay, not really. That book has been written off largely. In fact, in my book, Glorious Mess, you'll encounter no scientific studies about how a grown man can utilize the oxygen from giant gills. Uh, There's no bizarre but true tale about how a sperm whale was caught off the coast of Norway, opened up, revealing a family of four living comfortably inside with their twin hairless cats. You see, if you believe in a God who spun the universe into existence through his thought, If you believe in a God who holds the galaxies at his fingertips, a God capable of loving even the most stubborn human being, then the story of Jonah is a factual no-brainer. To an infinite God, commanding a fish and sustaining life are no big deal. In fact, it's harder for me to cook a package of top ramen noodles than it is for an almighty God to perform a miracle. The reason I chose Jonah is the same reason this book is called Glorious Mess. It's because nobody's messier than Jonah. In fact, we see him a mess at the beginning. He runs from God, dead ends in messiness. Then he obeys God for like 20 minutes, but he's a mess at the end. And yet God's glory shines throughout. See, there is such freedom there. So often in Christendom, we coach our testimonies to sound like, once I was blind and now I see. Once I was this, baddie, bad, bad, now I'm this, goody, good, good. But that's rather inauthentic. It might be more true to form to say, once I was a mess 53 ways, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm a mess 37 ways, but God's glory shines throughout. God loves you and is calling you into something glorious, even in the midst of your mess. No, wait especially there. All right, Overlake. Well, it is good to be with you today. Why don't you grab your notes out of your handout? We are wrapping up our series on Glorious Mess today. The title of today's message is Embracing God's Amazing Grace. That's what we want to do. And um, I I was uh, thinking about, just for those of you who are are joining us, I want to give a quick recap because Jonah is so amazing. The story of Jonah is in so many ways your story and my story. And, and so you, you go through it as, as we've gone through Glorious Mess, you see that, that Jonah had a call in his life and so do we, that God is calling us and he, he is urging us and inviting us and, and then Jonah ran from God's call and so do we. So often we run our own direction, we do our own thing, we pursue our own plans, our own agenda and Jonah landed in a mess, so do we. Right? When we run from God, when we turn our backs on him, we find ourselves dead ending in messiness. Finally, Jonah called out to God and God rescued him. You know what? We find that same thing as well. And when Jonah did finally obey God, there was an incredible return on his obedience. We find the exact same thing. So there's so much about Jonah that is really similar to our stories. I was thinking as um, Josh was highlighting that we have interpretation for this service for those who speak Spanish. At our 920 service, up in the front, we have interpretation for those who are hearing impaired. It's ASL interpretation. 
And I just want you to know that it has been so fun watching the, the folks interpret in sign language, especially when I was talking last week about the fish vomiting Jonah on dry land. I don't know if you knew what the actual sign for vomit is in ASL, but it's pretty awesome. Um, so it's just really, really cool how this is all gone. Where we left Jonah last is, is this place. He had just preached to Nineveh and the entire city called out to God. Everyone in the entire city of Nineveh responded to his message. And you would have thought that he would have been dancing around, jumping around saying, I am the world's greatest evangelist. I gave the shortest message in history. 120,000 people said, yes, God, we want you. I am the greatest. You know, what are you doing now, Jonah? I'm going to Disneyland. Bye, mom. You know, and off. But that's not where we find Jonah. And this gives us such an insight into where he is, where his heart is. In Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 it says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He was displeased. Not just displeased, greatly displeased. Why? Because God had grace for Nineveh. In fact, it was God's grace for Nineveh that made Jonah so angry. And he's on this emotional roller coaster. And, and the question is, does God use humans who are on emotional roller coasters? Of course he does. Thank God, right? All of us know our propensity to be very high or very low or to fluctuate emotionally. And God knows that about you. God wired us up. He understands our emotions. But because he understands our emotions, he knows that some of our emotions are not valid. They're the result of a wrong focus. And we certainly see that in Jonah's life. Here's what he says. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Wow. You know, God's grace is not a problem when we're the recipients of it. But it's a little bit annoying when God has grace for those who annoy us. And we might even get angry when God has grace for those we're angry with. And that's where Jonah is. Because Jonah's right. God is a gracious God. And God is a compassionate God. And God does relent from sending calamity. That is God's heart. Jonah's right. But this makes, God, or this makes Jonah angry. Because he doesn't want God to have grace for Nineveh. He wants a go get him God in this scenario. Now I want to tell you right now, this is the single most unbelievable fact about the story of Jonah. You ready for it? He is so fresh from coming off receiving God's grace himself. And yet he fails to offer it to Nineveh. I mean, he is so fresh. He's just received God's grace. It, is, it just happened. He's still got seaweed in his hair. And yet he can't offer grace to Nineveh. I find that just incredibly hard to believe. But this is what he says in verse 3 and 4. Now, O Lord, Jonah says, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Are you right to be angry or are you wrong in your focus? That's God's question. And you see where Jonah's focus is. Jonah's saying, I'd rather be dead because nothing I predicted is going to happen. He's concerned about his reputation as a prophet. Now, for those of you Bible scholars, you know Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21, 22, probably by heart. You know that 
if a prophet predicts something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that person's labeled a false prophet. And there could be serious penalty associated with that, including capital punishment. So Jonah had a lot of pressure to get his prophecies right, to hear God correctly and, and to prophesy correctly. Um, and, and he was concerned about his reputation for good reason. We don't feel anywhere near the same kind of pressure that Jonah felt, but how often are we concerned about the opinions of others? How often in your life are you concerned about your reputation, what others think about you? See, look what Paul says. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So it's interesting. Right? Recognize this. So we don't want to just please people. We, we want to please God. His opinion matters more. And yet when we read about Jesus and his growing up years, we read that he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. So it is possible to have a great reputation among those you work with, a great reputation among your neighbors, among your coworkers, your classmates, that, that it is very, very possible to be winsome, thought of as a person of integrity, that, that you're someone who is caring and kind. Like you can have a good reputation and yet still care more about God's opinion than people's opinion. And this especially matters when it comes to these conversations that we might have with a coworker about Jesus. An invitation that we might extend with our classmate. Hey, why don't you come along? Uh, we're going to church on Sunday. We'd love to take you with us. Right? When we get in those conversation moments, or maybe we don't because we are afraid of the opinion of men. But when we do get in those conversation moments, we're really concerned, are we not? And my challenge is, let's be more concerned about God's opinion than anyone else's. Now, I just want to share this with you honestly, authentically. As a pastor, I'm still flesh and blood. I have all sorts of you know, insecurities about this, that having spiritual conversations in the world, it's, it's like the only taboo topic out there, right? I mean, it's easier to talk about male bikini waxing than it is to talk about you know, faith sometimes. But here's the deal. This is true. Over the last series, I've probably given out 20 copies of Glorious Mess and invited folks to join us. I, I, baristas I've given to, uh, neighbors, uh, my, my kids' teachers at the school, you know, given, and, and I have, my heart's pounding, and my palms are sweaty, and, you know, a couple of times I fell over dead in a faint. Here's the deal, like, I understand that it's uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, and I hope this is true for you, at the end of the day, I want to care more about God's opinion than anyone else's. And, and the, the bottom line, what is God's opinion? He loves that person. He, lo he died to save that. He wants a relationship with that person. God cares about the, that person. He wants to use you to extend his love. So here's the question I want you to write down. What are you known for? What are you known for? What is the reputation that you're building in your world right now? You're building a reputation. What is it? It's interesting because uh, just yesterday I saw in the headlines, right? Whitney Houston just passed away, 48 years old. And you hear that, and those of you who know her work, you, oh, this was her reputation, or this was her reputation, or it was, you know, this song, or this Super Bowl thing, what, you know, like you think of the reputation, what is the reputation that you're building with your life? What do people who, who know you, what do they think about you? 
And I know this is a weird question because we haven't talked about reputation since we were in you know, junior high. But the, it's, it's important because it fuels so much of American pop culture. It fuels so much of what drives advertising, keeping up with the Joneses, being cool, wearing the right clothes, driving the right car, owning the right gadgets, right? All of that stuff, everything, it just drives this idea. What is your reputation built on? And it's kind of like climbing a huge shaky ladder, right? And the worst thing you could do is actually climb to the top of that, right? You win, you, you climb to the top, but that's the shakiest, scariest place to be. You don't want to do that, okay? And so God's grace, friends, it liberates us from all this. And we take the focus off of ourselves entirely and we put it on the needs of our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors when we stop caring about what they think of us and simply care about them. Then great things happen. Rick Warren said this. It's a quote from him via Twitter. To develop friendships, he says, stop trying to be interesting and just be interested in others. And of course, that sounds a lot like what Paul wrote via letter, which was a very early beta test of Twitter. He said, uh, each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so... I want to encourage you, as you build your reputation, and you are, you will, I want to encourage you to to build it on one platform. Because you can only do that. You only have one foundation for your reputation. You can destroy your reputation in an instant. It takes years to build, but you can only build on one platform. So the question is, what is it that you're known for? Now, Christians in our world... If you take a look at sort of what, what do the headlines say? What do, what do Christians in our culture, what are they known for? You get a list that sounds something like this. Well, they're known for intolerance. They're known for sexual shenanigans, for financial impropriety, for chauvinism, for sweater vests. I, I hear that list and I go, I want to be a part of another movement. Right? I want to be part of a movement where Christians are known for hosting the coolest block parties every year. I want, to, I want to be part of a movement where Christians are known for caring profusely about their neighbors. Where Christians are known for really digging in and making a difference by sponsoring millions of vulnerable children. Or inviting those children into their homes through foster care or adoption. I want to be part of a movement where the, all the microfinance is being provided by Christians who believe that God calls us to care for those that are disenfranchised. That's the movement that I want to be a part of. All fueled by the person of Jesus Christ. I was at a a church previous to this one, and that church was a part of a denomination. And at one point in my tenure there, the the head of that particular denomination, I don't know his title, it was like the Protestant Pope, um, what he did was he made a declaration that there was going to be a boycott. And that all of the churches and all of the Christians and all of the churches that were a part of this denomination suddenly had to boycott Disneyland. Now at the time, the church that I was serving at, we were in Southern California, it's like 15 minutes away from Disneyland. And I was there and and the pastors on on the team, we kind of looked at each other, we thought about it for like half a nanosecond and we're like, not a chance. And there's two reasons. The first reason is because most of the pastors on the team had season passes to Disneyland. And the second reason was, why would you want to be known as the church that boycotts the happiest place on earth? 
right? You, you only get one chance to build your reputation. Why would you build it on that? It's ridiculous. You can only build your reputation on one thing. Check this out. If you seek to build your life on control, you give up building it on freedom. If you seek to build your life on conditional acceptance, you cannot build it on unconditional love. If you seek to build your life on what you're against, you will never, ever be known for what you're for. You have to be careful what it is that you're building your reputation on. And at Overlake, if you're just checking this church out, you want to, what do we, Jesus is our one thing. Jesus is our one thing. Jesus transforms our lives. And we want to live our lives transformed by Jesus in such a way that we love God and we love people and we serve the world. And we want to do those things because Jesus taught us how. Right? We're a Jesus loves you kind of church. That's what we want to be on. Jesus is our one thing. And you might say, well, Mike, you didn't say anything about praying for Israel. You know what? I love Israel. Hey, we're going to Israel. And I pray for Israel. But John Hagee says a whole lot about praying for Israel. And if you want to go to podcast, he says a lot of great things. That's his thing. That's not our thing. You might say, well, Mike, you didn't say anything about politics. You know, I didn't. Dobson's been holding court on politics for years. That's his thing. Jesus is our thing. We'll stick there, you know. Well, Mike, you didn't say anything about being absurdly, ridiculously, profusely happy all the time. You know, I didn't. Uh, Joel Osteen has a lot of great stuff out there. (laughs) Tons of great messages. Really, really cool. You can Google him. Listen, I hope to be that happy in heaven, right? That's his thing. Our thing is Jesus. We want to keep coming back to Jesus. We want to keep going. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who provides the grace that we are in such desperate need of the grace that not a single one of us can earn. It's Jesus and the work that he accomplished through the cross and the burial and the resurrection. It's Jesus. And so friends, I, I, yeah, you can clap for that. It's great. We love Jesus. Now, let me point out something very clearly. This is where Jonah failed. He just failed. He missed this Entire, he failed to realize I'm a recipient of God's grace. Now I'm supposed to share it. He just missed this. And so in verse five, it says, Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now he's still hoping for the fire and brimstone. He didn't get it. Here he is sitting on the Assyrian plain. It's 120 degrees in the shade. And he is waiting to see God's destruction. But instead, as he watches the city, all he sees is the people in repentance. All he sees is the people on the ground. He sees them wearing burlap and dressing their cows and their pugs up in burlap sweaters. And he's, he, that's all he sees. And he misses this, right? He misses that God has grace for a wayward prophet and a wayward people. And God did not want to bring calamity. Jonah just missed it. And so God becomes a children's pastor for a moment and presents Jonah with an object lesson. And here it is. He brings a vine. Chapter, er, Chapter four, verse six. Then the Lord God provided a vine made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. (laughs) Now, this message could be called how to care more about people than shrubbery. Uh, It could also be called how to stop being an absolute whiner. Uh, But my favorite title for this message would be The Day God Gave Me Worms. I like that one the most. But what we see here is Jonah topping, he's just a world-class pity party that he's thrown for himself. And he's angry enough to die, and it's just about this vine. Here's what I want you to think for a second. Um, We can obviously read this and go, wow, his response is, it's just totally inappropriate for the scenario here. But do we ever find ourselves in that kind of scenario? Like, we have plans, and we have desires, and we have an agenda. And if, if we hit a roadblock, or if God has other plans, do we suddenly start to just freak out? I mean, is there ever a time in your life, and I'm not saying there is, maybe there is, maybe there's not, but, but when you definitely had a plan for how your day is going to go, and right away something else comes in, and it just wrecks you, just totally derails you? When our focus is inappropriately on ourselves, when we're self-referential and self-focused, this can happen quite often. And it, it, I just want to share with you a story. This happened a while ago. I was, um, I, I mean, it was years ago. I was still paying the bills in our home. That's how long ago it was. And I, I, was, uh, I woke up early in the morning, and I, I just went to the Lord. I had a great time with the Lord, Bible open, journal Cups of coffee, just, I, I just felt like, oh, God was with me, present, speaking to me. I was excited. Come downstairs, ready to go. Exciting day of ministry ahead. And as I kiss the family, get ready to leave, Jody says, oh, hon, you forgot to pay this bill. And, and here they sent you another notice. Uh, they added the late fee to it. I'm like, oh, a late fee. Ah, duh, duh, duh. I am not worthy to live. I can't pay a bill on time. What is, I should just quit ministry. I don't, uh. Jody's like, you are a mess, right? God kind of met me in that moment. Mike, it's just a bill, pay the bill. And who cares about the late fee? I wrote the check. The world didn't end. Like it was an incredible lesson for me. When's the last time you just got totally blown, you know, you get in a little conflict at, at work or something and just derails you, totally sidelines you. Right? Somebody says something and they're not as gracious as you think they, they could be. And oh, just, are we, are, we self, are we so internally focused that our whole perspective is how things affect me? We've got to shift our perspective. And, and that's this next fill in here. Do you have God's perspective? Do you see the world the way God sees the world? Now, God actually tells us in the scripture, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. Because God tells us, hey, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God will see more than you. God will see further than you. God will see deeper than you. God will take the thing that looks like the end of the world and turn it into a fresh new start. He did that through the resurrection. There's not a disciple that would have thought, even for an instant... That the way to bring salvation would be through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet God had the resurrection in mind. We need to shift our perspective. We need to see the world the way God sees it. And so this is what God says in verse 10. 
But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight, died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Please underline that last phrase. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God essentially says, you don't have my perspective. Grace is my perspective. 120,000 lives now live with purpose, transformed for eternity. Compassion is my bottom line. I love those people. Through them, I reveal my glory. God cares about the economy of the city. That's what the reference to the cattle is all about. He cares about the well-being of the city. That's the reference to the right hand or the left. There's a lostness there that God wants to correct. God calls the city of Nineveh great three times. In this short book, that great city of Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, should I not be concerned about that great city? It's great to God. And that refers to the size, it was a big city, but it also refers to this fact that to God, people are great. He loves people. Image bearers of God Almighty are, they're the most beautiful thing in the universe to God. He loves, it's a great city, and, and we need to have God's perspective. Look what this says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul, he's writing to, to Timothy. He says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Could you circle that phrase? Pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Give thanks for them. Even people you don't agree with, give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Look at this. Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. This is God's perspective. He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. We need to get God's perspective. We need to see the world through his lens, the lens of his grace, right? And it colors everything we see. It colors our interactions, our relationships. Give you a visual for this. The idea of, of wearing sunglasses, right? That also, it affects your perspective. It changes what you see. So you just recognize that we're called to put on sort of the lens of God's grace, now, here's an interesting side note. Um, Seattle consumes more sunglasses per year than any other city in America. Did you know this? And there's a reason for it. It's because um, the sun comes out while we're driving and, and we're blinded instantly. We can't see anything. We're like, oh, what is that thing? And, and, you know, we're scrambling around and we can't find our caramel macchiatos and where are Birkenstocks with our REI felt socks. And, and we, just, we just totally, we're blinded because we're moles up here. <laughs> and so we rush out to the nearest store and we buy the pair of glasses and we put them on. We're like, oh, great. So we're driving around. It's wonderful for that afternoon. But then the sun goes away. For a week or a month or 11 months. <laughs> and we've lost our sunglasses or we've thrown them away or we've composted them. <laughs> and then the sun comes out, the whole thing starts again. So that's, that's our deal with, with sunglasses. The, the idea though, putting on, right, the perspective of God's grace. How do we see people? 
How do we interact with people? Is grace our perspective? Is, is that what we see? Now, what's interesting is Christians, they have several different lenses that they put on. Here's another kind of a setup that Christians go for. And uh, <laughs> I feel a little bit like the church lady right now. I don't know why. So this is, these Coke bottle glasses, right, they, they're, they, they telescope in on really, really good. So I can't see very well. Everything's really blurry around the sides. But right in the center, super clear. Very, very, you guys are, you're larger than life. Now, what happens when Christians put these glasses on is one issue becomes central for them. So they don't have God's perspective of grace. They don't see through the lens of, of the whole counsel of scripture. One, one issue becomes the most important issue for them. And it's all they talk about, it's all they stew on, it's all they read, it's all they listen to. Like, they're just constantly going back. So, you know, um, as a pastor, I've I've written several recommendations for students to go to Biola University over the years. uh, Maybe hundreds. And on that that reference form, I I will fill out a question. They answer, every single time they ask the same question, does the applicant have any doctrinal views that are overemphasized. Brilliant. They, are they wearing these glasses? And so all they see is, yeah, it's Jesus and eschatology. They want to talk end times, only end times. Make sure prophecy, we've got to talk about end times. All that. Is it, you know, Jesus and politics? Got to talk politics. Got to be involved in politics. Got to, everything politics. Jesus will be a politician. Got to be, you You know, is it Jesus and something? Let me give you a formula that works. Jesus plus nothing else equals victory. Nothing else, right? So we got to take these glasses off. The last perspective, you know folks like this, right? Luke, I am your father. So, the, the, so there's really just a tiny little thing here, and, and I can barely see you. I trust you can see me. And Christians who wear this, the world is incredibly dark, and it's terrifying. And so really, the, those Christians who choose to put this, this helmet on, uh, they're not going to light a candle in the darkness. They're just going to shout at it. And and what they're going to do is they're going to gather their loved ones around them. They're going to gather them to themselves. They're going to circle the wagons and we're just going to, we're just going to huddle up and we're going to be safe. We're going to protect ourselves and we're going to make our clothes out of the drapes and we're going to marry our cousins and we're going to hold hands and sing kumbaya and wait for Jesus to pick us up. That's what we're going to do. And incidentally, not get a whole lot of welding done. Now, I just want to ask you, where are you in this? Like, do you have God's perspective? The God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that the sins of the whole world, so that anyone who comes to him could be covered by his grace, could be swept up in a beautiful call and a relationship with God that lasts for eternity. Like, is that your perspective? Or are there still some people that are outside it? Jonah thought Nineveh was outside. God's grace doesn't go there. 
Is that still you? What is your perspective and and how do you get God's perspective? Friends, it's, it's amazing. It's simple and yet we can spend our whole lives going after it. You ready for this? We become God worshipers. We exalt God, we magnify God, we get close to God, we celebrate God, we, we draw close to our Heavenly Father, and we hear the Father's heart. And if we hear the Father's heart, we're not going to miss this. We understand that grace is His perspective. This is what He wants to go after, that He recognizes, or that God is saying, I don't care about my reputation, that, that I just love people. And I will pursue people and I will call people and I will use you to go after people and to to, to go into your world and to share my love and my grace because that's what's important to me. That's my perspective. And I want us to go to that place where we go, oh, oh, we are the recipients of God's grace, right? We've received his grace. It's been poured out, washed over us, cleansed us entirely. Now we're called to go. Now we're called to share. Now we're called to have God's perspective in the world. And I do want you to think about the irony here. It's, it's the only being who could legitimately hold out his reputation and demand trembling respect and awe for it. Because his reputation is impeccable. Right? The only one who says, my reputation is flawless... He actually trusts his reputation to a bunch of yahoos like us. Right? And he says, you can go. You can be my ambassadors. You can be my emissaries. I trust my reputation to you. Look what it says here. This is 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is using us to speak to you. We urge you as though Christ himself were here pleading with you, be reconciled to God. He says, you're my ambassadors. You're my emissaries. You're the ones I send. Into a world dying for grace, you're the mouthpiece that I want to proclaim it. I care about grace. Now you do the same. Build your reputation on it. And so the question I have for your friends is, who can you share with? Who can you invite? Who can you serve? Who can you love? Who are you praying for right now? Your copy of Glorious Mess, who can you give it away to this week? How can you be a part of this incredible process as an ambassador of God? See, the great thing about the book of Jonah is it just ends. There's no resolution. It's totally open-ended like the short story, The Lady or the Tiger, or some French film that died at the box office but won a few awards. Like, we don't get it. What, that's it? It's just over? They just stop writing, okay? We don't know what happens next. There's no Jonah 2, the whale strikes back, you know? Glorious or messier. Like, there's no, and there's a reason for that. And the reason's really simple. The book of Jonah is not really about Jonah at all. The book of Jonah is a snapshot of God. God who is creator and Lord. God who commands the weather and the whale. God who loves the prophet and the people. God who loves all of us, everyone. Israelites and Ninevites. Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Moonies and Baptists and Catholics. 
God who loves Republicans and Democrats. It's true. God who loves those who live on Novelty Hill and those who live on Capitol Hill. God who loves Nineveh. That's why I sent Jonah, he says. I love the world. That's why I sent Jesus. And through the book of Jonah, we see the relentless and the unconditional and the unending and the unyielding love of God for imperfect people everywhere. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, you can look this up. He says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale to emerge proclaiming love to a wayward people. I'll spend three days in the belly of the earth to emerge proclaiming God's love for all. So, we don't know if Jonah got it. But the better question is, do you get it? Do I? See, I'll close with a story. It was many, many years ago. I was still driving a 1979 Suburban. And it was beautiful and old and clunky. It was, it was an environmental nightmare. And, and I was pulling out of my driveway one day. This was when we were in Southern California. Got in my car, fired it up, and I shifted in reverse. I, dr- I pulled back into the street, and I glanced at my house. And, and this was an amazing scene. My wife was there on the front porch step, and she was holding my infant son at the time, Caleb. And right next to her was my daughter, Alex, who's three years old. And they were waving at me. It was like a leave it to beaver moment, and, and not that typical in my world. And and so I was just really pleased with it. And, and I look at my daughter, three years old, and she's shouting something to me. And she's shouting something with intensity. She really wants me to, to get what she's saying. She's just shouting. She's even up on her tiptoes, you know, she's just shouting at me. And I couldn't hear her because I was driving a 79 Suburban. And so I pull back into the driveway and I roll down the window and I hear her say, Don't forget! Don't forget, okay? Don't forget, I love you. And I was like, how could I ever forget? I mean, she's like the sun shining in the morning, right? How how could I forget? And in that moment, I sensed the Lord's presence in a powerful way. And he was saying, Mike, That's my message to you. Don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget I love you. Now, I want to proclaim this very clearly to you this morning, right? Because I know me. I I, I don't look lovely. I don't feel lovable so often. I I am not acting in a love-worthy kind of a way. The words I've used to describe myself from this pulpit and in my book are the words, a mess, right? I, I, I know me, and yet God doesn't pretend I'm lovely. God doesn't lie and say I'm lovable when he knows I'm not. No, check this out. Because of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross, I am lovely. 
right? Because he is the beloved son and in him, I'm beloved as well. He chooses to love me. He takes my sin and my shame, the stain and the burden and my guilt, and he gives me his righteousness and he does the same for you. For all who are in Christ, we are beloved. And it's a miraculous, glorious mess. It's true for me and for all who are in Jesus. And in the midst of your journey, in the midst of God's call on your life and your response, if you run, you get into a mess, you call out to God, whatever that journey looks like, I want you to hear his words over you. Don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget, he loves you. He loves you. And he's calling you into the fullness of his life and his grace so you can extend that same life and grace to those in your world. So don't run from him. Tell him yes. Experience his grace. Be ready to share it wherever you go. And be certain of this. It will be a glorious mess, but mostly glorious. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded that the first words in the book of Jonah are your words. And the last words in the book of Jonah are your words. And I know that's not accidental. The first words in our story are yours. And the last words in our story are going to be yours. And we just ask right now that you would give us the courage. You'd give us the opportunity, the strength of heart and will to say yes to you that we embrace your grace. We want to be full recipients of your grace this morning. And Lord, we want to have the courage to share that grace with others. We ask that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would do the cleansing work, that you would do the healing work, the forgiving work, that you would pour your love into our lives. Let us never forget it. And Jesus, we do pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we'd be able to offer that grace to others in our world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.